Hear these words from Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up into their hands so that they will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to a test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdom of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Thank you, Krista. Good morning, good morning. Obviously a very famous, very well-known passage. The theology nerd in me would love for us to spend about four hours in this one. There really is literally so many important, important dimensions to this. So uh, we won't do that. We'll stick within our normal time frame. Uh, but what I think would be a great approach for us today to look at it, um, this is false with the lectionary reading for today because this is the first Sunday in Lent. And so we had a beautiful Ash Wednesday service, which is what begins the 40 days and 40 nights of Lent. And the tradition of Lent, the ancient practice of Lent, comes is patterned after this passage, right? You see the 40 days and 40 nights that are part of the temptation or test. It is translated either way. That'd be one of the really fun conversations to have is what is the nuance that comes out when you think of it as a temptation, when you think of it as a test, but I'm going to stop doing that. All the things we could do that we're not going to do. Um, 40 days, 40 nights. You also see, of course, the big part of this is Jesus fasting for that entire time, which is where the tradition within Lent comes of withholding or fasting from something for some kind of a larger purpose. And so here's, here's, here's what I'd like to suggest as we look at this passage today, the approach uh, when we think of what Lent is, I think this passage should be the template. So every year when Lent comes around, I actually think this is an important kind of passage to come back to. When you think of what is Lent and how do I participate in Lent, this is the passage that I think should inform how we think about and enter into Lent. All right? So that's the first thing I would want us to say. The second thing I want to say that is a particular perspective on this passage is that Jesus in this passage is the prototype of what it means to be human for us. Right, when we think of the human journey of living on this side of heaven, on our way to meeting God face to face someday, when we think of how we're supposed to live, in particular within Lent, but even in a more general way, there's so many meanings of God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, but one of them is Jesus is teaching us what it means to be human. Uh, w w this is such an important passage. All four gospel writers have this. All four gospel writers have it in the same point. This is an essential part of 
God being in the flesh, Jesus being a human being and showing us kind of some of what we should aspire to, what we should hope to, what we should expect along the way. So I'd like to look at this Lent, this passage as a template for Lent. Jesus is a prototype for being human. Sound good? All right, let's let's just talk about this word Lent for a minute. Anybody know what the word Lent actually means, what it comes from? It's You don't have to shout, right? It's one of those peculiar, when you hear it, you go, huh? Uh, Lent essentially means springtime. Did you know that? That's that's kind of where the word Lent comes from. You think springtime. What does that have to do with these 40 days, 40 nights of preparing for Easter, Resurrection Sunday? The idea of it, the notion of it is that Lent is meant to be, almost, I like how, how one commentary put it, that um, it, it's us engaging in a time of, sp- Benjamin talked about this during Prayer and Praise, of revival. It's, it's, it's engaging in a time of spiritual renewal, in a time of spiritual spring, so to speak. That was the phrase they called it, a spiritual spring, where you really very, in a very attentive, thoughtful, spirit-like kind of way, really open yourself up to this sense of spiritual renewal, a spiritual newness happening, which is a cool idea, but not actually how a lot of us think of Lent, right? Doesn't Lent often kind of feel heavy? It's kind of defined by which, you know, traditionally people are giving up during it. I don't think a lot of us think of it as a time of spiritual refreshment, a spiritual spring, but that's what the actual origin of the idea of um, Lent comes from. And even as we're looking at this very heavy passage of Jesus dealing with the devil, we probably don't think of the lightness of a spiritual spring, but I think that actually is where it's all going. So um, so that's kind of an interesting way to, to, to think about what Lent is. So to get to the meaning of this, I'm saying I think we can look at this as a template for Lent. Jesus is a prototype for being human. Two stops that we need to make. First one a little bit faster, second one a little bit longer. But really, I would go so far to say it's just hard to understand anything about this passage without getting these first two. So if you don't mind bringing it back up, Mr. Sergio, thank you. Um, let's start in verse one. There's two, two big stops I want to make that I think are just kind of foundational for us to really wrap our heads and minds and spirits around this. So verse one, the, f- the, the first word is the most important word of what I want to get. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, all right? That verse then is super, super important to understand the temptation because what is that verse then saying? It's saying that this is part two of something, right? Something just happened that's critical to understanding what's about to happen in the temptation. And we've already covered this in the series. You hear about this a lot here in the then, but uh, here's the bottom line. We'll we'll come back to this in a minute. To understand the temptation, you have to understand it's a two-part story, not a one-part story. The temptation is part two of the story. In part two, the story makes no sense, really, if you don't get part one of the story. So part one of the story, again, all four gospel writers start it here and then continue it into the wilderness. What happens at the end of chapter three? What is part one of the story? You can't shout this one out. What's part one of the story? What, it, what happens to Jesus at the end of chapter three? It's the baptism of Jesus, all right? The baptism of Jesus, what happens at the end of chapter three, then he goes into the wilderness. And so um, at risk of overstating this over and over and over again, but it is just so critically important. Uh, the most important foundational thing that happens at the beginning of Jesus' life, as we saw a couple weeks ago, it happens at the end of the transfiguration, but for now we'll focus on the beginning. The most foundational thing that happens at the beginning of Jesus' life, ministry life, as a human being, is the heavens open up when he gets baptized. And when the heavens open up, Jesus hears the voice of the triune almighty God, the God of love, who says to him what? It says, Jesus... You are our son. You are our beloved. In you, we take great pleasure, great delights. Right? Not only is that part one, that's the main event here. Right? Uh, one of the things, and we'll get to this a little more in the second one, one of the things where I think that temptation can become kind of 
it can kind of spin us up a little bit. If we think the fight with the devil is the main event, we'll get kind of twisted up on what I think the Bible's trying to teach us. The main event is that Jesus just had this powerful encounter with the triune God, who's the God of love, who says you are the one who is loved, and now sending him out in the world to show the world that love, right? It's going to go baptism, temptation. The very first thing we're going to get after that are Jesus' first public words where he pronounces the coming kingdom of God, which is this message of God's salvation for all, God's deliverance for all, right? So the main event happens at the end of chapter three or in different places in each of the gospel accounts. The main event is the God of love saying, you are the beloved. I'm sending you out into the world to show God's love. And from there comes the temptation, right? So the temptation is something that's going to try to take Jesus off course from the main event. The main event, God of love, Jesus' love, send this love to the world. That's actually the pattern for all of us, to meet the God of love, to come into a deeper knowledge of our sense of love, to go out into the world showing this love. Whatever the temptation is, it's take us off course from that. You see what I'm saying? The temptation is never the main event. The interaction with the devil that we'll get to here in a minute is not the main event. The main event is what God heard from, what Jesus heard from God. In the commissioning that Jesus is getting from God, the temptation is what takes, threatens to take us off course. You follow me? That's like a real big, like foundational piece to this, the then, okay? One more, we'll spend a minute here from time to time. We kind of open up this conversation because it is important from the biblical perspective. Uh, verse two, verse three, we now see just, just like how nonchalantly Jesus is in the, sent to the, tempt, the, the, the desert to be tempted by the devil. And the devil comes to him and we see he goes by three different names here, right? So this character, the, he's called the devil in verse one, verse five, verse eight, verse 11. Verse three, he's called the tempter. And six, he's called Satan in verse 10. So this is the other, this is just kind of the other big, I guess you can make, kind of call it assumption. The Bible's just assuming we have some kind of sense of who the devil is and how the devil works. The temptation is hard to make sense of if you don't have a sense of how the devil works. So let's, let's, let's stop here for a minute too and say, who is this tempter slash devil slash Satan? Uh, I think to this day, still probably the most famous work on the devil is from C.S. Lewis, the screw tape letters. And I, I, I think it's such a valuable way he opens it up. He says, human being, particularly human beings who are trying to follow Jesus Christ, who are following the Bible, continually make one of two opposite errors when it comes to the devil. Either they don't think about him enough, or what's the opposite of that? Think about him way too much, right? That there's, there's kind of a danger, there's a danger in kind of seeing a devil behind everything. There's a danger of like not seeing the world as Jesus saw the world, that there's this, there's this devil, this very real figure. So I'm gonna do like, yeah, y'all know, I actually, I actually think it's fascinating to kind of interact with how the Bible talks about the spiritual dimension, how that interacts with the human dimension. So another one of those points where we could go an hour, I'm going to do, I'm going to do like two and a half minutes on this, but right, like, who is the devil as the Bible talks about him? This is to me would be the essential things that we always remember. So when we think of how the Bible talks about the created realm, um, kind of at a very general, general level, because of course the Bible says God is creator God over all things, right? But within creator God over all things, that there's three different kinds of beings that creator God has created. There's like the wide array of the animal kingdom. So all the different animals, that's part of God's creation, this really wide array of animals. Then there's this second category of beings, human beings, right? Which we have kind of our, a very distinct and unique relationship with God and the world and the afterlife. And then there's this third category of beings, celestial beings, right? The Bible talks of all three kind of interacting with each other. And there's a part two, part particular kind of interaction, the broad array of the animal kingdom, human beings, those who aren't created, you know, 
God's creation here on created earth. But then there are these celestial beings started out as angelic beings. The Bible says that angelic beings, like human beings, had the ability to choose good or evil, had the ability to align with the purposes of God or to organize themselves as rebellious against the ways of God. And so a whole bunch of angels chose to disassociate with God and to kind of become filled with hate and evil and are now actively working against the purposes of God in this created realm. And the most powerful of them, the leader of the pack is who? This character that we're being talked about, the tempter, the devil, the Satan. Satan is not a name, it's a, it's a, it's a title. It, the, the accuser, the adversary, it's all these different names, but it's, it is an angelic fallen being whose purposes are to rebel against God. And so when we look at this, what, what we see is that the way the Bible describes this is that the celestial beings were actually created to help God accomplish God's purposes. These celestial beings, all right, last kind of like way out there thing, and then this will start getting more practical. Uh, so this is what's kind of fascinating. As a celestial being, the devil has no power compared to God's very self, right? The, the devil's created by God. It's a rebellious creature who's rebelled by God. But on earth, for reasons that are somewhat mysterious and somewhat we could kind of talk about and think about, on earth, this created rebellious being does have the ability to disrupt the purposes of God and is organized as such that the entire purpose of this rebellious creature is to agitate and disrupt the purposes of God, the revelation of God's love to the world, okay? Big idea. Now we're going to start narrowing in. How is it because this is such a big idea, I think this is really important that Jesus does is Jesus helps us kind of attach one word, one word to the way that the evil one disrupts and creates havoc for human beings. You right, ready? This is where it starts getting practical, where the temptations, I think, make a lot of sense. If there's one word, and we're going to look at this passage where Jesus shows us this in its clearest way. If there's one word that Jesus would use to describe the way the evil one creates havoc in the life of human beings because that's the only place it can really create this havoc. It can't do anything to God's itself. If there's one word, the word would be lies. Lies, right? Serge, if you don't mind bringing up John chapter 8, verse 44. This is a conversation that Jesus is actually having with the Pharisees. It's a really long, important passage. It's the same passage where Jesus describes himself as truth, and he says in the truth, there's freedom in the truth. You'll be set free by truth. But when talking about the devil, this is, this is, this is I think. I personally just don't think you can understand the temptation if you don't understand how Jesus thinks of the devil. So he's criticizing them. He's saying right now they belong to their father, the devil. But here's how, I, here, here's, here's how he talks about the devil. He says the devil's a murderer, which I said it's the one word is lies, but ultimately the lies are to try to create death and take us away from life. The devil's a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Now here's how Jesus describes the devil. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All right, so it says the same thing three different ways. Jesus says the devil's a liar. That's how he creates death, is by lying. Says his native tongue is that of lies. Which any of you who speak more than one language, you know, a native tongue is very powerful, right? It's kind of how you think, how you pray, how you make sense of the world, right? Jesus is saying who the devil is at the very core, this fallen, rebellious creature, is lies, 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 lies. That's who he is. That's how he thinks, how he talks, how he communicates. And then kind of a really interesting picture. He says he's the father of lies. So if we were going to have a conversation about like what is, how do, you, how do you sense where evil is happening in the world? You look for like where there's an aggregate of lies, where there's a cluster of lies, where it feels like lies are ruling the day. I think that's what strongholds and principalities are, when it feels like there are just lies that seem so obvious 
to anybody who would look at it, yet these lies feel so operative. Right? Jesus says, the devil is a liar. His native tongue is that of lies. He is the father of lies. Okay, so those are the two big stops. It's a two-part story. The main event, not actually the temptation, the main event is the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus meets the God of love, is told he is beloved, sent out into the world to proclaim the kingdom of love. Part two, that there is a very real presence of evil in the world who tries to agitate the purposes of God through one big word. What's the word? Lies. All right? So coming back to that, we're, let's look at these three temptations. And if you don't mind, again, flipping back to the original passage, Sergio. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into each of these three. There's so many wonderful things written on each of these three that really looks at the many applications of each one. You know, I think there's probably value in that too. What I'm more interested in today, we're trying to look at this passage as a pattern for Lent and Jesus as a prototype for human beings. What you see as a commonality between all three of these temptations is that they're built around lies. And last thing to remember, I promise, this is the last thing. Um, when the devil lies, it tends to be about one of two categories. It tends to be lies about who you are, who we are, and the devil tries to lie about who God is. Those are, it doesn't ever have to get more sophisticated than that. It's a constant assault on trying to get you to question who you actually are. That's one way lies work. And the other way lies work is to try to get us to, to call into question the goodness of who God is, God's character, right? This is the story all the way through when you're in the Garden of Eden and the serpent swarms in. The serpent does not have power to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God. You don't have God saying, here's the Garden of Eden, and then the serpent saying, I have my own garden. It's almost as cool as God's or even cooler than God's. You should come to my garden. Serpent doesn't have that kind of power. The only kind of power the serpent had, that, that evil has, is to lie. To call into question who God is, to call into question who we are. And this is the balance we're to see that in one hand, that's not very powerful, so we shouldn't live in fear of the evil one. And lies actually are pretty powerful. That when you don't clarify a lie and sharpen the truth, it can actually create a whole lot of havoc. That's the story all through Scripture. Right? And so this, and the, one of the many meanings of the temptation is it's kind of part two of the Garden of Eden. It's Jesus fulfilling the test in a way that Adam and Eve could not. When he's tempted, when he's tested, um, he's able to clarify the lies, sharpen the truth in a way that Adam and Eve weren't. But now let's just like quickly go through, go through these and see, I said two categories. It's lies about who we are, lies about who God is. So look, it's only the first two temptations because the devil finally realizes it's not working. But look at the, look at the first two words that Jesus says in each of the temptations, the first one, verse three, the tempter came to Jesus and said, what are those? One, two, three, four, five. What's the first six words of that verse? It's the, it's the same in the, in the first temptation. The tempter comes to him and says what? If you are the son of God. Now I told you this is a two-part story, not one, right? It just started, I mean, the baptism of Jesus just happens, right? In the heartbeat of the baptism of Jesus is God saying, you are my son. You are my beloved. What is the, very first thing that happens when evil shows up. It challenges the thing that God had just said, which should be a reminder for all of us that even your most mountaintop of experiences where you feel like you're so clear on who you are in God and you're living from that sense of belovedness, it's gonna be about 10 minutes before that thing is under full assault again in all different kinds of ways. It never has to get more complicated than this. You all, we talk about this all the time, right? When you're not living from your sense of belovedness, you're gonna look to somebody else for it. Right? And that's one of the things you see in this. Temptations are almost never these bad things. Right? The alternate realities are never this, like, do either something really good or do something really bad. It's almost always good things right? that are by themselves good. That's what makes temptation so deadly in a lot of ways. Right? It's taking you just enough off course 
that you're not living from who you are. You're trying to look to it from something else that maybe in itself would be good, but it's not actually God's voice over you, right? So these first two temptations, the, the devil starts it by saying, if what you just heard is true, then prove it, right? And going out into the world, trying to prove that you are who you hope you are, okay, we all do it, but it's a recipe for disaster, right? It's a recipe. The longer you're in that cycle, trying to prove to the world that you belong, as long as you're in that cycle, trying to prove to whoever, a partner, a friend, a group of people, an organization, a job, as long as you're in a cycle trying to prove to people who you are, yeah, the seeds, the seeds of destruction are being sown. And I'm not talking about that in like gigantic ways. I'm talking about like the everyday little ways that we get off course, right? That's the first way that evil lies. It presses in. It challenges the voice. Who gets to say who you are? That is just a daily reality. We see that in the temptations, totally locked in temptations. And then we can come through and look at just like the serpent challenged who God was in the Garden of Eden, so the devil now, the tempter, the Satan, challenges three different times uh, who Jesus sees God to be. And Jesus, of course, passes these tests, but I almost, we want to celebrate that, of course, he passed the test. But if he's a prototype, we can kind of expect these same types of challenges. And I don't think there's only three ways to challenge how we see God, but here's three of them. And I almost think what's most insightful is not even the temptation itself, but it's how Jesus responds in each time. Because each time Jesus responds, it shows that he sees which part of God's character is being challenged, right? So in the first one, the tempter says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, right? So Jesus is hungry. He's like literally not eaten for 40 days. Jesus answered, it is written, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so I think how I would read this, the devil is kind of attacking at the moment. It's almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, starting with the most basic things. The devil is attacking Jesus and saying, can you really trust God as a provider? Can you really trust God is going to take care of you? Or should you not take matters into your own hands? Right? That's just a very basic, but real. When you're in it every day trying to make ends meet, that's a very real twisting that can happen very easily that you no longer trust that God's got you that in the same way that God took care of the Israelites with the manna, that God will take care of us. You no longer believe that part of the Lord's Prayer where it's give us this day our daily bread. You feel like you got to take matters in your own hands. So the devil's trying to get Jesus to call into question whether God is really a provider. And I actually kind of wanted to do a, a whole sermon just on Jesus' response. I told you there's like a lot in this thing that like that draws me out. But I, this is my favorite of the three responses. Not that's more important. It just touches me to a deep level. I love what Jesus says to this first one. Not only does he clarify the lie that can God be trusted, but the truth that he sharpens, he says, I know who my God is. In fact, here's what I know. Man is not meant to live on bread alone. That doesn't mean it's unimportant. Of course, human beings need to eat and drink and be sustained. That, 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 that's so critically important. But what Jesus is saying, who my God is, not only will God, my God take care of me, he will, God, God will, but I'm designed for something more than just food and drink. I need, I love the words, the word rhema. It's the spoken word of the living God. Jesus says, I need the living word from the living God. And that's what I'm craving. Not only do I think my God will take care of my physical health and eating and drinking, but I know I need something so much more than that. I need a living word from a living God. That's the truth. 
Right? It's all about clarifying these lies, sharpening the truth, living from this truth. And it gets kind of progressively um, more kind of dug in the way the evil one goes after who God is. I'd call the second test kind of the God on demand test or the, uh, say it more crassly, the vending machine God kind of test. Right? You see this not only so much in the temptation, but the way Jesus responds to this. Jesus says, do not put your God to the test. So what, what, what the evil one's trying to do here to Jesus is say, come on, if your God is as awesome as your God says your God is, shouldn't you be able to pray and get an answer right then? Shouldn't you be able to pull the, pl- pull the lever and get what you need in this moment? Like, prove it. You make your God prove that your God is real, right? And man, don't, I mean, we all have that in us, don't we? How many times in a given week do you find yourself saying that if God was real, God would do this for me right now? Uh, in, I mean, there, there's, it's, it's like all these tests, all these temptations. You can see, I mean, God does say, pray for what you want. Pray, get, pray give us this day our daily bread. God says, I care deeply about what you want, right? But it's like when these things get twisted up a little bit, and this is what Jesus emphasizes in the response. Just don't put your God to the test, right? Where there's this, created being testing the creator God saying, if you're really who you say you are, then you must do this right now, right? And so this is what, this is what, this is the lie that the evil one tries to turn on Jesus and Jesus responds by saying, that's not this relation, this covenant relationship I have with my God is not a God on demand kind of a thing. I don't just get to pull a lever and God does what I want. That's not how we work. That's not who God is. And then I think the trickiest of all, I, this is kind of my language. I'm not sure if this is the right way, but I kind of call, I, I think of this third one is almost like the prodigal God test. You know how much I love the story of the prodigal sons. And I feel like in the story of the prodigal sons, I think the assumption is that the younger brother who leaves and goes off to the faraway place, I think the assumption is that the younger brother had everything he needed in the house. I think at home he had access to everything he would ever need. But there's some voice in his set head that said, as long as I'm in this house, I'm being cut off from something more fun, more exciting, more amazing. And he just has to leave the house to go explore the real world, you know, to see if there are better things. Of course, he finds out that there's not. But this is, this is what I kind of see as this third one of, and it's a lot of what I think happened in the garden too, where, where the evil one is basically saying, is God really as amazing as you think God is? There's a, lot, there, there's a lot you could have. If you would just kind of step outside of your purpose right now, there's all this stuff that I can give you. Of course, Jesus comes back, and the biggest statement of all is, worship your God. Right? How does he say it? He says, um, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve God alone. Again, we, we could like spend a lot of time thinking about the uniqueness of each one of those. What I'm really actually trying to draw attention to is that the way that evil one, and this is where, this is where we're kind of landing at, the way the evil one shows up is lies. The evil one sees that Jesus, and I think this is what the 40 days was for. I don't think the 40 days was just to get ready for the devil. I think the 40 days was to let what Jesus experienced in the baptism sink all the way in. Because Jesus was going to need all those. Jesus was going to need to remember he was the son of God. Jesus was going to need to remember he was the beloved of God. Jesus was going to need to remember that God doesn't just love him and forgive him. He actually likes him and delights in him. These are all really important things that Jesus is internalizing in the desert. And then when the, when the devil comes, and this is why I think test is an interesting word to think, or tempt, they both work. But the evil, one, the evil one is trying to attack those things Jesus just heard. Trying to undercut Jesus' sense of his own self. Trying to undercut Jesus' sense of who God was. Unsuccessfully, of course. Um, but this gives us a sense. This is what, what I, if I was going to summarize what I believe this passage is telling us about Lent and even life in overall, is that 
here's how I would say it. It's almost like this loop. This is how I see it in a lot of ways. Uh, let me say it a different way. Let me try to say this clearly because I think it's important. When Jesus starts on the first day of the 40 days, he's not starting from scratch, right? It's not from a zero place. Jesus is starting with a deep sense of who God is, of who he is, of what he's supposed to do in the world. That's why I think seeing these two parts is so important. Here's what I think that means for us. When we enter into these periods of springtime, of spiritual renewal, of trying to deepen, we're not going on a search process when we do something like this. I think one of the things the Bible is reminding us is that everything we need, we already have, right? To come into relationship with God is to meet the God of love. It is to be told that this God of love forgives and wipes clean and calls us home and renews us and then sends us out into the world to love God and love neighbor, right? That, that's day one of the story, right? So when we go into these periods of reflection, of clarification, of mortification, of sanctification, all these kind of big words that get used to describe these kinds of process. We're not going in the search for something. We're actually kind of doing the opposite. We're trying to get clear on what has always been made known to us, but we have trouble living from. And when evil comes, and it will, I mean, this is, this is kind of the story of the Bible that, um, you know, even, I remember, I remember talking about one pastor with this. He said, I don't, I don't even want to think about the temptation. I have enough devils inside of me. I don't even need to worry about the devil out there. And like, I actually really get that too. That's part of the story too. Is like, you don't need nothing on the outside. We got our insecurity, fear, doubt, mistakes, you know, narratives, scripts that run inside of us. I mean, I really get that too. We'll come to that in Lent too, because that's the two halves of it is there's our own internal kind of stuff that just that alone is enough <laughs> to worry about. But I, I just think it's incomplete if we don't, it, it's, it's, it's not, it's not one or the other. The Bible says, yes, you've got your own stuff you're working through, but then there actually is a real entity on the outside too. There's a real evil one in the world that has limited power I and mean, it can't create a new alternative reality for you. It can't really do anything for you ultimately. All it can do is call into question the things God has already said are true. But it will do that. It will show up and it will kind of Look for foothold is one of the ways the Bible talks about, right? Don't give the devil a foothold. It looks for footholds. A foothold is interesting. You got kind of like a place you can press in, right? So those places where you're not so sure of who you are and you have trouble trusting God's voice, that becomes a place, right? You're going to try to press in on that. Or those times when life gets hard and you're weak and feeling at the end of your rope and starting to call the question who God is, you know, it becomes like a foothold. The evil one will try to like press in on that. And, and, and try to get you to go a little further and call into question who God is, right? So there is our own internal sin. We'll kind of do that in this series as well. But what Jesus, I think, is saying here is this is kind of, there's always two voices speaking in your life. And one is much more powerful than the other, but if you don't pay attention to the weaker one, it can, it can whittle away. The most powerful voice comes from the God of love, the greater God, the triune God who's over everything, who says, here's who I am, here's who you are, now go out into the world. I mean, really, that's the whole story is to continue to listen to that voice, right? But I think what Jesus is saying is on your way to living that out, not only will you have to battle with your own insecurities and fears and doubts and guilt and stuff like that, but there is a real evil one who will try to make this voice sound less clear than it is. There's a very real evil one who will take truths that are eternal and unbendable and try to call those into question whether they really are that true and really that eternal, right? And that's why... You see things like the Apostle Paul saying, nothing can separate you from the love of God, not, you know, things on earth, nor it talks about like the dark powers that we'll try to do, right? Like the, 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 the point is always to come back to these truths and to get clear on them. 
But here, here's where I'd bring it back to Lent and where I think we should be serious about this over the next 40 days and 40 nights. There's something to be said about taking dedicated, focused time to be really clear on what the truth is, the God of love, who we are as the beloved, how we live in the world, but also the ways that for you, this is where it takes a lot of self-reflection, community time. In what ways are those lies distorting the truth, right? To clarify the lies, to sharpen the truth, there's something to be really said for that, for that kind of intentional kind of work, right? It's not a search for who God is. It's a re- God has already said who God is. We've already met that God. We're trying to live from that place, trying to live in the world that way. But to clarify the lies, to sharpen the truth, probably 10 different people asked me over the last two weeks, like, should I be fasting this Lent? Like, should, should I withhold from like chocolate or something like that? Withhold from coffee? I'm like, that could be really good as long as you know why. Why would you do that? I mean, you withhold from chocolate just to say you withheld from chocolate for 40 days? I mean, good for you. Lose a little bit of weight. That's probably good too. But like, did you like, like, did that accomplish what you were trying to accomplish by withholding from chocolate for 40 days? Well, actually, if withholding from chocolate is a means for you to create space to clarify the lies that are blurring the truths of God and to sharpen the truths of God in a different way, well, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Fast from chocolate, that helps you do that. Or fa- you want to fast from social media? If what it does is create some space for you to clarify lies and sharp truths, then yes. But I mean, that's what Jesus did, right? Like, I'm, I'm never demit, like, you know, I, I don't ever love, like, here's the behavior and just you do that just for the sake of it. But that doesn't mean the behaviors aren't important, right? I'm like, yes, fast. If it's connected to a deep understanding of what's happening here, that Jesus is trying to live deeply into this truth that was just spoken over him. And that even God saw this as part of the preparation process for Jesus in the flesh. He had to be practiced and accomplished at hearing that voice that tries to, dis- the voice of lies that tries to discredit the voice of truth. Jesus needed to know he could do that in the flesh. And I actually think the Bible's being honest when it says Jesus never faced a temptation that we didn't. I think for Jesus, though, you know, we see it so fast. And of course he wins. It's Jesus. He, of course he passes the test. But I think those are real for him. I think those are real for him. Um, and he's showing us as a human being how we are to live from the truth spoken over us by God, but that we will be assaulted, that truth will be assaulted in an ongoing manner, not just by our own internal doubts, but there's real evil in the world that has turned on God and is trying to get us to turn on God with it, and we are meant to be victorious. We're absolutely meant to be victorious, but we do have to realize that the lies are out there, and they're going to try to distort the picture for us. Track with me? Does that make sense? All right, let's uh, let's just, <coughs> I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. Let's just take a moment. It's a lot of content. On another hand, it's like very straightforward. So let's just kind of open ourselves in prayer here for a moment on that. So join me, if you will, as we just kind of reflectively kind of set our hearts and minds on these truths. So God, God in the flesh, Jesus, this was obviously such a critical sequence for you. You got baptized. You went toe-to-toe with the tempter. And then you came out on the other side and started preaching the kingdom of God. I think at the most simple level, you have called all of us to follow the same kind of progression, same type of progression, that we would for sure at a first time, but in an ongoing way, step into this kind of profound reality where the heavens open and we see the God of the universe, the creator God, Yahweh God, the triune God, in the beautiful brilliance for who you are. And we look in awe and wonder at who you are and 
all the images that come with that dove and light and water and healing and renewal. We look at you and your brilliance, but then we hear these crazy, life-transforming words that I am God who is love. And I look at you and I see a child of mine, a beloved, one I delight in. Like you, it, it's not just for our own sense of experience with you. It's so that we can know the light and love of God and be sent into the world through our deeds, through our actions, through our words, through our lived lives to show this love. But it also seems real important to you that we would know that on the way there, we will be challenged, oftentimes in a way that feels just, uh, I don't know, I think sometimes it can feel fatiguing, overwhelming, but we will be challenged. The combination of the hardship of life, our own internal doubts, insecurities, but then a very real evil one who tries to get us to question, are we really the beloved children of God? Should we go out somewhere else and find a different way to prove our worth? In an even more sinister way, who tries to challenge our view of you, our love of you, our trust of you, with the ultimate hope that we would just choose to live life on our own, be, build our own kingdoms, be our own, our own spiritual supervisors. I find it, I find it to be of great comfort that. It's not actually even a progressively clarifying message that we get from you. You say everything we need to know right up front. I am God. You are mine. I love you. I'm sending you into the world. That's it. You just, just like the, son, the story of the prodigal sons, you ne- the father at home never changes the message, never changes the stance, never moves. You are always there. So we go on this journey living deeper and deeper into that. But now, God, pressing this home, some of us really are tangled up in some lies. Some of us really tangled up, struggling to believe that we are who you say we are, struggling to live from that place. I'm just praying in this moment that, that one of the things your spirit most does is illuminate, brings to light things. I hope we'll do this over the entirety of Lent, but even just in this moment, will you open yourself? Are you living from that place of who God says you are? And if not, and most of us are not fully, why? What are the lies? sounds so easy for me to get up here and say we just need to believe that you are who you are but in reality life is hard and it's confusing and it's disorienting and it's so easy to let lies slip in that mistrust who you are so easy to create justifications for slowly cutting you out of our life So God, I pray with just in this moment a process will begin that will continue throughout this Lent season where we would see a little more clearly than we have the way lies about you have started to attach themselves to our minds, to our hearts, to our soul. 
then God, I ask that you would give us the same clarity of truth that Jesus was able to find in that moment to remember that what we most need is a living word from a living God. That's what we're designed for. That's where life comes from. That's where strength and power comes from is when we trust that this God is alive and that your word is alive and that you have created us to be sustained by the truth of who you are. The lies of the devil are no match for your truth. We're not meant to live in fear of those. We are to be aware. We are. And it's important we're aware of them that we keep finding our way back to the powerful truths about who you are, who we are, and how we participate with you together in the world. Continue to illuminate, God. Make the truth fiercely brilliant in our lives. Clarify the lies. Let us, thinking of Genesis 4, when Cain was getting deeper and deeper into the grips of lies. And you said, sin is like a, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you, but you must master it. May we master these lies, live from the brilliant truths of who you are and who we are. Continue to clarify even as we sing and worship now. What a line in that song. The goodness of God comes chasing after me. You're running after me? How did it say it? The goodness of God comes running after me. Mm. That's the kind of truth. Right? That's the kind of truth that reorients us. That transforms us. That changes how we think of who God is and who we are. Mm. Well, if you're able, could you rise with me for a closing benediction? the new members class. We'll start that soon in here. Uh, we covered a lot in the temptation of Jesus. Mm. Mm, it feels nice in here. Use your imaginations for a moment. Can you actually picture what it looks like to have the goodness of God running after you? Just open yourself up a little bit to that. What does that feel like? What does that sound like? At Ash Wednesday, Dr. Sally asked, what does that smell like?
I'm actually feeling that right now. I can actually, I'm, I don't actually have this happen that often. I actually feel something inside of me where I can feel the image of the goodness of God running after me. And I find myself asking, am I running away from it? Or running towards it? Am I stopping? Am I, uh, so I, it's, I'm feeling this right now. So I, I'll uh, thank you to the worship team for taking us into this space. Obviously, I wasn't planning this part. I, I have not had that. I just had like almost like some kind of a vision of God chasing after me, God's goodness. And in my little vision there, as we were doing that, I couldn't stop from running away. I don't know why. That's not what I want to do, but I was running away. And it just finished. The goodness came and got me anyway. <laughs> it just caught up and took me over. So there's something deep in that for me. I think that's my life story right there. Uh, so thank you. That, that, that was really beautiful. Thank you. The same passage where Jesus calls the devil a liar. Uh, this is what I want to remind us is our benediction. Because it really does, for everything we've talked about today, it comes down to two words. Truth, say truth, and lies. It kind of comes down to that. Jesus says, if you hold to my word, you will know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. I, mean, I think that really is how God sees it for us that God is speaking a word over us. And to the degree that we are able to listen and hear and respond, it's not joyless obedience that we experience. What is it that we experience? Freedom. So go in that freedom. Go in that love. Love you all. Be blessed.